I'm Phil America, artist and activist, and this is Conversations with Creativity. We're releasing the podcast through Love Extremist Radio. Each episode, we're going to spend about an hour talking to a different creative as an exploration into different forms of creativity, talking to everyone from artists to actors, directors to designers. It's meant to be casual, almost as if you're sitting in the living room with us. I'm Phil America, and this is Conversations with Creativity. is Conversations with Creativity. I want to take a moment to do this introduction a little bit different than I've done every other introduction. This conversation you're about to hear is with Richie Reseda. And before I get into who Richie is, I want to just like lay out a little bit of groundwork. So with most conversations, I usually have a very brief introduction, a couple sentences at the most, and then get right into it. And I feel like within the conversation, I really dig into kind of who they are and what they've done and what they're doing. And I wanted to depart a little bit from that with Richie because I wanted to give it an extra minute that I could sit down and, and kind of like speak a little bit on the work he's doing. And also on the way that interviews and conversations happen within the industry. And so when you, you know, watch any any interviews, like the most visible ones being late night shows and things like that and the Breakfast Club and whatever, you know, people end up just talking about what they're working on because they get on those shows from somebody in PR that reaches out and gets them on to talk about whatever project they're working on, you know. And so it ends up being very uh, masturbatory in that way. And that in and of itself isn't what bothers me. What bothers me is it ends up just being something that you could Google on your own. And so, you know, you talk about, you talk to a, an artist, a musician, wh- whatever, and what they end up talking about is kind of, you know, their Wikipedia page. You know, you hear it's, and, and I speak I speak from my own experience as well. It's like every interview I've ever done, it's like rambling and running through a bunch of the projects that I've done. And while I understand that, like, you're reaching a new audience, I also know that um, it almost it almost feels like we're we're calling the audience dumb, you know? We don't acknowledge that these audiences, you know, myself included and everybody else that might be listening, you know, we're a lot smarter than people give us credit for and we're able to Google something faster than somebody's able to explain it. So if I wanna know more, if I listen to an interview, I, I want an interview to be, you know, a door and a gateway into like wanting to go learn more about this individual or this project or this space or place or whatever may it may be about. But I also wanna, I wanna come away with a new perspective if I'm already a fan. Like I watch these late night shows and somebody does a junket and like stops at all the, the obvious places. And in the end, like they end up saying the same things, telling the same stories, even using a lot of the same same rhetoric and, and vernacular, like some of the same exact words show up in every single interview. And it's like, okay, this is so contrived that I can't, like it's just a waste of my time. And it's rare when I see any interview where somebody gives any insight. So with all that said, with this interview with Richie, I, you know, a conversation I had with Richie, I, I want to be sure to, I wanted to be sure to kind of like take a little bit of a departure from that. And in part, because I don't, I think it does a disservice to, 
to what Richie does and who he is as a person. But I also think that it, um, you know, I wanted to talk about the creativity that he's doing and the things that he's putting out a little bit more so than um, the stuff that, you know, the press kind of fetishizes and, and always asks him about. So with that said, um, let me tell you a little bit, bit about Richie. You know, he goes by he, him. He's formerly incarcerated. He is a musician. He's a producer. He's an abolitionist. He's a feminist. Uh, he is an organizer. And he is someone who is both connected to, mentored by, and mentoring people within the community that I really, really respect. So, you know, Richie is someone who I met from, actually from Ethan, who runs the Love Extremist podcast, who I released this podcast on. And, you know, that already was a cosign enough for me to want to know more about Richie. But then getting to know him and hearing so much about him from everybody in my circle and hearing from, you know, seeing him show up in, in so many places that I'm looking already is just, just more reason for me to want to know more and more and more about Richie. So, you know, the work that he's doing that really speaks to me is, is um, you know, the work he's doing within the prison industrial complex and things around feminism and things around um, justice and, and integrity and, and respect within the within folks who are incarcerated or folks who, are, you know, are formerly incarcerated. And I say all that to say that people should take a moment to do their own research and looking to to what Richie's doing both before and after you listen to the conversation we've had. And so if you want to know more about what he's doing, go to questionculture.com. There's a lot on there. There's a lot of uh, doors that'll open for you to, to learn more. It'll be a rabbit hole that'll possibly consume a month of your life and make you a better person and open a door for you to go and make um, change for other folks who need you to go there and be there and show up. So if you don't know what... Um, initiate justices look into that if you don't know about the prison feminist stuff he's doing look into that he has you know shown up in a million places that i'm not going to sit here and ramble off because it's again stuff that people can do their own research and i don't want to pretend that everybody's stupid but all that said um take a moment to look at what he's doing follow him on instagram richie Reseda. it's r-i-c-h-i-e-r-e-s-e-d-a it you know i'm never one to say hey go here follow this person and this is somebody who if you're not already following you need to be there's you know very few organizers who i i point to for folks to go look at what they're doing and support but also to learn from he's definitely one of them that i always suggest people go and follow and listen to the album defund the sheriff we actually recorded this prior to the album dropping it's phenomenal it's you know one thing that you know I work a lot in, in design with with artists and musical artists and so it's one thing I always tell them is hey look like you need to approach every single aspect to this with the same amount of um, let's say creative output and so if you put all your soul and heart into the music you need to do the same with whoever you're working with on the graphic design for the album cover and for the merch and for everything else considered and so you know when I saw the when I saw the album drop. I was shocked at how good both the graphic design were, the you know of the album itself, the um, all the stuff that came out around it, also the billboards I saw in person and things like that. Like it is phenomenal in every single way and speaks such you know powerful messaging in all of the music. And so, take a moment, download the album, defund the sheriff. It's the name of the album. I think the album is pretty uh, 
the name is pretty didactic. You should know exactly what it means. So take a moment to do that. Look at Justice LA Now that he's working with. Look at Schools Not Prisons. Look at Reform LA Jails, of course. Um, I'm sure everybody's already aware of them. If you're not already aware of them, take a moment. Get yourself familiar with it. Take a moment to send Richie's work. You, you just pick one of the things that he works on and, and take a moment to send it to five other people and, and get them on board and get them behind the work that he's doing because this is, this is where we need to be. This is what we need to be doing, and we need to be supporting folks like Richie with a lot more emphasis and a lot more energy and a lot more money and a lot more you know opportunities because it's, it's people like Richie who are going to make this world a better place <clears throat> and who already are and, you know, just to, to cap it all off, Richie, I'm, I'm thankful for the work you do. Um, I want to give you your flowers while you're still here or while I'm still here and while we're all, we're all paying attention and, you know, I'm, I'm happy you're, you're out and free and doing the work you're doing and I'm thankful for the work you did while, while you were incarcerated and, and let's keep it moving, man. Let's, uh, and let's get into this. I think this is uh, this is going to be a good conversation. And I hope again that this is just a door for folks, and that they take a moment to to explore more beyond this, because the work he's doing is is beyond important. Hey, brother, Hello. how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm. I mean, all things considered, okay. Yeah. Is this is my audio okay? Yeah, your audio is great. Um, awesome. We're already recording. People are already listening in the future. Oh, I was like, wait, it's live. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank God. I feel like I would mess everything up if it was live at all times. <laughs> um, so kind of with everybody, the, the premise has always been to travel kind of chronologically through their artistic career. Um, and I use the okay. term artistic lightly. I mean, every creative kind of identifies a different way. But I... One thing I found really compelling about your story is you really started as a creative at a young age and then kind of stepped away from it, right? Yeah. I mean, in can, a lot of ways, that's true. Can you kind of tell me about like what your your first foray or first like creative moments were as a youth and then how you were able to step away from that? Yeah. Um, I feel like like all people really I was born creative Mm -hmm. um my original loves were animation and drawing and comic books and like visual art I was when I was eight years old my favorite artists were Pablo Picasso and Salvador Dali and Frida Kahlo um and then eventually getting into music um because I wanted to be like Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg Mm -hmm. um it's like around the year 2000 and uh, when the chronic 2001 came out and um, <laughs> there was this class in my elementary school where they said you could learn. No, I was younger. I was in first grade. So I was six. Oh, wow. Where they said you could learn how to play the recorder. And I thought the recorder was the was a soundboard. <laughs> like I had seen these images of Dr. Dre in front of this huge thing. And I was like, yes, I want to learn how to do that. And I right, showed up. In with the 808 and then they showed yeah. up. It's a like a flute or something <laughs> it was like this plastic flute right and i was like wait what the hell is this this is the recorder so that was my first instrument i learned how to play the recorder and how to like read music to the extent a six-year-old does um and yeah just that i really just stuck with music and wanting to be a producer and and, and an artist um but also made clothes 
and was like obsessed with theater and, and musical theater and like a lot of young male identified kids um i learned around the time of middle school being like 10 years old that that's not the way that a man is supposed to be quote unquote uh running around playing the recorder and listening to the spice girls and watching rent and sewing and shit so um i very quickly adapted to what i felt the world expected me to be Right, like somebody um, else's definition of what a man is. Yeah. Um, which looked like first doing drugs and selling drugs, then gangbanging. Um, I didn't give up the art initially, but by the time mm-hmm. I dropped out of school, when I was like 16, I was like fully addicted to pills. Um, and the music kind of just withered away. My keyboard got hella dusty. I had studio equipment by that point, but it was... It just wasn't my top priority. Like getting high and staying alive uh, was my top priority at that point. And I didn't r- write anything for like two years. Yeah. And this is what age? Like what age are you at this moment? Um, I think by the time I stopped writing altogether, I was 17. Wow. And then I didn't write again until I was 19. And I was sitting in the county jail fighting 150 years to life. Right. It's, I mean, the the craziest part about it is it's like that took you out of it, but it also put you right back in as well. Like it brought you back to, to what you love was being in that position. Like maybe that wouldn't have happened had you have stayed out, right? I think, I don't know. I think there's um, something about having to fight for my life on the outside that I also wanted to fight for my life on the inside. Right. Um, Like, I just wanted to be me. And jail really doesn't allow you to do that. Um, It makes it very difficult. Being incarcerated makes it very difficult to be yourself because just like kind of being in the streets made it hard for me to be creative because I was so now focused on survival. That's how prison and jail was too. I was just afraid for my life all the time. Right. Um, So it could have went the other way. A, A lot of people, you know, Tupac famously said, like, he didn't write anything while he was incarcerated because he felt like his soul was just dead. And um, I actually had to really go against myself to push myself through that experience. Um, Because I wrote something, I remember, in the county jail in 2011, and I kept trying to write, but I didn't write anything else again until 2013. Wow. Because it was just so hard to have anything to say because I just felt, I was just in so much pain and just felt so depressed. Um, and I, I think but it that, was re- sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but one, one thing I would love like you to kind of explain because uh, most of the stuff, especially like around your work, it's so like people can Google you and, and you've, you've talked so much about the work you do. But one thing that I think a lot of people don't understand who have never been incarcerated is like the quote unquote politics in jail when it relates to race and like, the other issues that you're facing when it comes to trying to navigate a system that is foreign to you, like when it's your first time being incarcerated or first time doing like a, a longer term in um, behind bars. And those things like overshadow the ability to write as well. It's not as simple as just like, oh, I had a writer's block or I was distracted. It's like you have every force working against you, pulling you away from your own like creative mindset that you're trying to put yourself in as well. And like for somebody that who's never been incarcerated, 
not speaking for myself, but maybe for a lot of people who are listening, how would you describe kind of like the situation that you were thrust into, like, quote unquote, politically, as well as like the framework in which, you know, you're able to write or not able to write? Like you're not sitting in a cell by yourself 23 hours a day, like most people envision and just able to kind of like write right away. You know, it's it's very different than that. Yeah. Um yeah, being incarcerated is just like being in a secluded world, but it is still its own world. It's a whole other world with its whole own rules. And especially when you get to prison, I, I don't know where you were uh, locked up at, Phil, but in, in California state prison, like you have a job, you go to school. Um, there's like you have responsibilities you have to do every day to quote unquote program and quote unquote have the privilege to be able to get on the phone and and stuff like that so um and these things are policed by both the both the you know people who are keeping you there as well as by the inmates right yeah so incarcerated people have their whole own culture that exists within prison that is really patriarchal culture on steroids because none of, nobody has anything, right? Like patriarchy teaches us that we are, our value is based on what we have and we can either have money, quote unquote, have women or be tough and violent. And in prison, there's only one of those things you can really have. Um, and violence kind of wins out, out of, out, you know, overall. So it's extremely violent culture, extremely suppressive culture, um, emotionless culture in prison that uh, it's just danger from from all directions. I mean, the moment I got to the LA County Jail, like literally the moment after they spray you with whatever that stuff is and they make you like strip down and like show them your butt and all that, we walked into this room and none of us have any clothes on. And in that, like within 10 minutes, there was a riot that we just barely were able to like stop before it, it popped off. There was like this whole standoff um this is with the police or this is like more with this is uh, like an, racial, amongst incarcerated like... people yeah it was a racial thing there was a a latinx man who was like drunk and saying the n-word in spanish Ooh. and like cussing out this black dude so it was about to it was about to go all bad um but his you know other latinx people ended up beating him up as like a way to show the black folks like no like we don't condone what he's doing and so everything ended up being smooth so like within 10 minutes of being in jail, I was like stripped naked and essentially, you know, just sexually, I don't want to say assaulted, but just like sexually humiliated by the police, walk in, avert a like hundred person riot. And then 10 minutes later, watched the cops jump this dude and break his leg, like right in front of us. Oh. Like we all saw it and heard it. So it was like, just like, that's like the experience of like, just like violence over here, violence over here, like your brain is just doing overdrive, just trying to survive. And then you get into, you know, prison where you also have responsibilities and you're trying to see your family and you're trying to go to programs and you're trying to get out and you're trying to, you know, you got to work and you got to do all these things. So amongst all of that, me as like a 19, 20 year old kid with 10 years and two strikes, knowing if I get caught up in anything that I'm going to serve the rest of my life in prison, I just didn't have the spiritual bandwidth to create. Right. And I think that that's what I, is compelling is that I think people don't realize just how tough it is to make it to the next day. Like, and not just, not just physically, but like spiritually, mentally, it is so incredibly tough for folks who are incarcerated. It is, it is a whole nother, it's, it's like you said, it's a world on steroids, a patriarchal world, uh, like race is such a, such a heavy topic. 
and the none of the rules make sense and going against the rules is extremely difficult and sometimes can cost you your life or your you know reputation quote unquote and so like mm -hmm. being able to put yourself in a position to be able to create must be incredibly hard like i know personally the times i've been incarcerated i had absolutely no bandwidth to be able to create anything mm -hmm. like it's definitely informed who i am today it's definitely informed some of the work that i'm doing and where i put my efforts but it I can say for sure when I was there, the only thing I was thinking about was to making it to tomorrow, you know? Yeah. I, I think for folks who have never experienced it, I would just in, in, invite them to consider what it would like to live a life where you are always assumed to be illegitimate. Mm. So by that, I mean, if you wake up in the morning and you tell your kids what to do and they do it, like that wouldn't happen. Right. Like every, every single thing you do, you're, you are assumed to be wrong. You're assumed to be lying. You're assumed to be deceiving. You're assumed to be worthless. If you knock on a door and somebody opens it for you today, that, that doesn't happen when you're incarcerated. You knock on the door, the cops look at you and they open it whenever they feel like it or they never open it at all. You want to get mm -hmm. on the phone and you assume it's going to work and it's going to go through and you're going to call somebody, it might not work. And nobody mm -hmm. is going to in a rush to fix it, right? If you get served some food and there's something nasty in the food and there's a hair in it, like no one's going to fix it for you. Nobody cares. Your humanity does not exist the world has pretty much agreed as a whole that you don't matter and from that place from that spiritual place to have enough spiritual juice in you to create something and want to show it to somebody takes a lot right yeah i mean it's it's you become one of the most voiceless people in this society and so for you to be able to come and like get through all of those things how did you personally like get to a space where you could say okay I'm going to reach out to people. I'm going to look for mentors. I'm going to like try to use my voice, find my voice, but then use my voice to create conversations and ask questions and encourage other folks to ask questions around issues that they're dealing with on a daily basis in jail, but also like on a much like larger spiritual scale. Um, I was very blessed that I had a community and people who, who were committed to loving me no matter what. Um, I had a loving partner, I had amazing mentors, amazing friends. Like I had people who really poured into me. So that world where you have like no legitimacy and violence is your only access to legitimacy. Like I didn't have to completely live in that world. I knew I could pick up the phone, albeit whenever they would let us do it. And there would be somebody on the other side who would pick up, who loved me, who saw me as legitimate, who would encourage me and, and, and pour into my humanity. And the more of that I had, the more I was able to then give that to others. Like I, the reason why I was able to start writing in 2013 is because it wasn't until 2013 until I had like a circle of robust friends incarcerated with me, excuse me, a robust circle of friends incarcerated with me. Like once I had a circle of loving people around me, of other artists and creatives who love me, who I can show my work to, who I could see their work, then I, I became prolific again and I started writing. Right. And was there, was there people at that moment that, you know, I gave you permission is the wrong way to say it but like where you felt like you were given the space and the permission and the encouragement to go to start to do that work like is there yeah. like specific folks you would point to like I know like I know you talked to Patrice Colors, who's somebody that I'm, I'm sure both of us um, look up to in a big way but I know you had you had said at one point like in, in kind of my digging um, into the all the different interviews you've done and you had said a quote that like really stood out to me was I may be misquoting you, but you said, I'm glad she said that I'm glad this is who you've chosen to be. 
like kind of in, in reference to you writing her saying, hey, look, this is the work I want to do and where I want to dedicate my time and energy. And so was like, I'm sure she was a, an important person at that moment. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was there other folks as well that, whose names you'd mention or whose like work you think other people should look into? Yeah, hell yeah. P Patrice was huge in that and always encouraged me to create art, always encouraged me to organize. Um, my partner at the time, Taina Vargas Edmond, was my closest and like daily supporter who encouraged me to create and organize and be all I can be and really poured into me in a way that I even had the bandwidth to do that. Um, my other mentor, Mark Anthony Johnson, um, my best friend, Haywan, um, my very good friend, and for a time while I was incarcerated, my manager, Damon Turner, um, was somebody on the outside who I was able to call daily and like rap, literally rap with. Um, but also my friends inside, uh, Brother Charles, who I started Success Stories with, our Toxic Masculinity program, um, and JJ88, uh, who I make music with to this day, who's like the dopest rapper, singer, producer I've ever met. Um, these were folks like, you know, by 2013, 14, 15, like I had such a big community of artists around me that uh, I, it was some of the best days of my life to this day. That's amazing. And so now that you're not incarcerated, is there, did it change? Like once you started to like reassimilate yourself in the society and, and into a different society, obviously, considering the fact that I think, you know, the society on the other side of the fence kind of functions in a much different way. Did you like creatively, did it change your direction? Did it, did you have to like readjust or like kind of recalibrate the way you were functioning as an organizer and as an artist or did like did you kind of just keep going on the same path hell yeah no it definitely changed um when I got out I realized I didn't want to rap no more like <laughs> the closer I got to getting out the more and more I realized like I don't want to rap I'm a producer like that's what I do nice. um and it's not that I never will rap but I am not a rapper like I'm not marketing marketing myself as a rapper and I think what happened was like when I went to jail <laughs> This is not, this is going to sound like we on Joe Budden show now. When I went to jail in 2011, only rappers rapped. When I got out in 2018, everybody with a fucking Instagram rapped. And right. it wasn't cool to me no more. It was like corny to me. Like I couldn't see myself as that dude in your DM being like, listen to my shit on like fucking whatever uh, SoundCloud. Like I just couldn't be that guy. It was too, the assumption of whackness, I, I couldn't live with it. It was too shameful for me. So I was like, I'm just going to be a producer. Um, that was a big thing that kind of changed my trajectory. Is like I no longer market myself as a rapper. And I've, I really just love producing, which has really been amazing. Um, but the other thing that really changed, too, is the culture of wokeness that I got out to kind of fucked me up. I didn't – I've always – since I started organizing um, – with Patrice and Mark Anthony when I was 14, like that kind of, that's when I first was like, oh, I'm gonna use my art. Cause I was already producing at that time. I had a studio. Um, I was like, oh, I'm gonna use my art like for the movement and changing narratives. And, um, and I didn't know anybody else who was trying to really do that. Like there was examples few and far between, like you would see like Kendrick had some dope projects out, Beyonce had some dope projects out. And then you had like the quote unquote conscious rappers. But, um, when I got out and I got out to this culture where like 
it seemed like everybody was trying to be famous, but everybody also wanted to sound woke, but not necessarily organize or do anything about systems of oppression. And I say everybody loosely. I just mean like the general culture, like wokeness culture online. Sure. Sure. Um, I didn't know what to do. I literally, it, I kind of went into a little bit of a creative depression when I first got out because I'm like, wait, everybody's trying to be change narratives, but not really. It's like folks were trying to use the movement for their art, not use art for the movement. And I, it took me a minute to have, like, that was like a really cool soundbite, but it took me a minute to develop that soundbite to understand what was happening. I didn't know what was happening. I thought that maybe my idea was just whack or that art really couldn't help the movement because of what I was seeing. So it kind of threw me off and it took me a minute to realize that there's a difference between using the movement to push your art out and using art to push the movement forward. Mm, it's well put. I mean, I think about it a lot because right now you see how activism has kind of become fashion. Mm -hmm. And people don't, it's the flex now isn't the, the Gucci, Gucci loafers. It's the, you know, sign or the black, like the sign at the, the protest or the black box on Instagram or whatever the next thing is tomorrow. And that's the thing. But it's like you said, is like, what are they actually doing? Like, just because you've wrapped this thing or like held up this sign, what have you actually done to dismantle the patriarchy? What have you actually done to help somebody who's in like struggling because of their race, their class, their gender that, you know, like, and I think that that's something that it, it's it's super disheartening for me, first and foremost, as somebody who's like dedicated my whole life to trying to like make change, especially like using art as a as a vehicle to do so. But I think for for people who are like getting into activism, let's say, or like see it, see an issue and want to make change, and they their intentions are pure, and they're holding the sign, and they want to do the thing, or they're making the raps, like what how how can you encourage somebody to like radicalize themselves a little bit a, a step further and like actually take it to the next step and raise the bar like interpersonally or like culturally to make it higher than just hold the sign or just post the the black square yeah i mean first and foremost plug in with organizations like there's organizations that have been doing this for for generations for 20 years 40 years and sadly, sadly four five hundred of them some of them right exactly and to to think that you're just going to come in and drop a song and do more than they were able to do in the last 40 years it's just not true like it, it um yeah we should be moving in step with the leaders who have lived this for years mm. and we should be be seeing ourselves as part of a movement not just individuals quote unquote with a message it's like no there's a movement that is happening um through society and we are a part of that we as artists just get to add to that with our art but we ourselves are not the movement i hate it when people refer to their record labels or like their little swag or their little whatever is a movement like join the movement like nah bro you're not a movement like you can be part of the movement but you right. yourself are not a movement like you're a clothing line or you're a rapper or you're you know what i mean right and, um, if, and if, sadly if you are a movement like your movement is very fucking vapid bro like calm down it's, it's... <laughs> It's a little too much. I mean, the, just the vernacular that people use is like everything from their their clothing line be a movement to like trying to colonize Mars or whatever. It's like the words that they're using, they don't realize that these words actually mean something to folks who are out there putting their bodies, their life, their freedoms on the line and actually fighting for change. And they're like just throwing it around like it means nothing because they know these words have power, but don't know why they have power. And it's, I think that that's, an important thing for folks to know is that, you know, you, like me personally, I don't ever think that I have the answers and I certainly don't ever want to be the one to voice them. It's, but I, I do know that I have a position or 
a platform or a responsibility to ask the questions and to create questions and like point people to other folks who might actually have the answers. And those are those people who you just like you said, who are the leaders of these movements. And so I think that that's what the what art has the ability to do is like point people in an abstract way towards figuring these things out for themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's so like, I've kind of come up with like a little system in my mind for like, how art can help the movement. Um, and I think I call them like cultural deliverables. Like this, mm -hmm. I think these are what things that pieces of art can do. We can legitimize an issue or a struggle or an identity or a, we can legitimize with art. We can amplify, we can challenge, we can empower. And the, and the most powerful thing we can do is inspire. Like mm. if somebody hears, looks at, experiences your art and then is so moved that they go take an action, I feel like that is the pinnacle of what art can do. Absolutely. I mean, if, if everybody pushed 15 people around them to go out and do something, inspired them, pushed them, helped them, taught them, the world would be a different place, you know? And that's, that's the reality is that we're not doing a good enough job pushing other people, helping other people get to those spaces. And, and the best way to do it, like you said, is to inspire, you know? Yeah. And so like looking at kind of the large array of, like you're a multi-hyphenate in, in the like literal sense in a way that I don't think a lot of people are. Everybody in LA is doing a hundred things, obviously, as well as <laughs> around the world right now, but you're actually like working in so many different ways. And it's not even just that you're doing different creative things. You're also, like you said, organizing. And like, there's, there's all these different ways in which you're engaging with issues. And for you personally, is there an intersection where all of these meet? Like, is that intersection you? And if so, like, how do you, how would the person who comes to you via the organizing work you're doing um, be able to understand, like, let's say music that you're producing or other things that you're doing? Yeah. Um, I try to, for me, it just helps, it, it helps me make sense of it to just think of it like, I create experiences that lead people to live more loving, logical, integrated lives. Um, and that's, that's like all I'm, I'm trying to do. So if it's producing a song or it's creating and delivering a patriarchy workshop um, or it's like policy organizing around getting a law passed, like either way, I'm trying to create something that will lead people to living a, a world with more love and logic and integrity um, than oppression. And is there is there things that you've done that like when you look back on them, you would have done differently? Not I don't want to use the word regret, but just that you've you know kind of learned from. And you know when people look back at that work, you know obviously we live in a time when all these things are documented, or at least a lot of them are. Um, is there things that you're like, oh, I wish I would have done this a different way. This is what I, this is what I've learned from that and how I would have done it differently in 2020. Yeah. Well, you mean artistically or just in life? I mean, artistic, I don't want to say in life, like obviously I'm sure we, there's many things we both probably do different <laughs> if just not get caught doing something. But... Right. I was going to say, well, one, I wouldn't have robbed those stores. <laughs> right. So I could right. have had my twenties on the streets. Right. Um, like a less obvious one, but I mean like, yeah, what, what about like, you know, thinking about a workshop, is there one that you would have gone back and like done differently or like, you know, thinking about your work 
um, you know, your anti-patriarchy work, like how, how would you have done it differently with the knowledge that you have now that now that you're out and now that like you're, you know, growing and learning and the world is changing? Yeah, I think for sure. Um, I, I get, there's an art, an art thing that comes to mind um, and a, a workshop thing that comes to mind. Mm, Artistically, perfect. I would have um, taken my time and taken my art more seriously sooner. Mm. Um, so by that, I mean, like Indigo's album, uh, I, I produced an album for... Uh, the co-owner of my company and, and my artist and, and good friend, Indigo Mateo, we dropped her album um, in April of 2019. It's called Intuition. Um, I listen back to that album now and it feels rushed to me. Really? Like, I, didn't, I didn't really understand. I was so fresh out of prison. I didn't really understand the way that once you put an album out, it kind of lives forever. So for me, I was treating the album like... I was still moving from such a prison mentality of like, you need to get it while the getting's good because anything can be taken away from you. I was still so fresh out. I felt like at any time, the cops are just gonna come to me and be like, okay, your little field trip's over. It's time to go back to prison now. Mm -hmm. So we literally recorded, now we, she had been had it written and we produced it, I wanna say over the course of a month. And then we went and recorded the whole thing in seven days. And this is an R&B album. This isn't like hip hop, turn on some auto tune and some dope beats and rap. Like right. this was like a m multiple level, like neo soul album that we recorded in seven days. Um, and I listened back to it and I just feel like, man, I wish I would have invested more time and money into the mix. I just wish I would have treated it as a permanent work of art. And I didn't, I didn't have an idea of permanence on earth yet. I was so used to being in prison. Um, Mm. but i and do love yes. the, the yes queen yes goddess video. Like that's whew, the visual language of that is like it, it, it comes across in a way that's never been done you know like there's so thank many you. good moments in that thank you oh it's the honor i, I look forward to telling her and lj and, and the director contessa um yeah people need to go and watch that on youtube obviously um but yeah, yeah. I, I loved the album. I listened to it like three or four times and I was just really impressed by it. I mean, it felt very honest. Like, And somehow I do think that, you know, the more time we take and put into things and over polish things, something gets lost in that too. And it becomes kind of like a time capsule of where you were in that moment for better and obviously for worse. But I, I don't know. I love the album. So I appreciate that. On that one. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I think... Uh, like workshop wise, it took it took me a few years. It took us a few years at Success Stories to understand that the best way to invite men into reconsidering patriarchy um, is to grow through our patriarchy alongside them, as opposed to kind of stand up and be like, "These are the things you need to learn." Like we were first really leading it like political education almost. Like you need to know what consent is. You need to know what rape culture is. You need to change your behavior. And like that shit wasn't working. And we couldn't, we did that in various forms for like <laughs> like two years before we realized like, oh no, the way this works is I don't tell you about your patriarchy. I tell you about mine. Wow. it's really well put. I think that people would do a lot better to understand like what other what patriarchy means for for other men, not just themselves. I mean, fucking heads at the end of the day and 
I can sadly, if things don't affect people in America, they oftentimes just turn away. But if you, if somebody who you trust or you look to or who you can see yourself in tells you about the patriarchy that they're living through and how it's toxic and how it's hurtful, I think that that's a, it's a really interesting entry point to get people to listen. Yeah. Did yeah, you? Yeah, because then you can relate. Now, now right. somebody's shown you vulnerability. Now you can be vulnerable. But if someone's just coming at you, like your attitude is more likely going to be like, "Fuck you." <laughs> right. Right. Sadly, but true. I mean, we live. One thing that I learned being incarcerated, and I don't know if it reigns true when I think about um, conversations I've had, both while I was there and while I and while I'm not. Um, is is something that I heard multiple times and you've probably heard it too. And it's, you've got two ears. God gave you two ears and one mouth. So you should be listening twice as much as you should be talking. Do you <laughs> feel like people like listened more because they were incarcerated? I know like it's, it's a place where people like find religion and find their faith because it's a moment when they're like, you know, maybe it's because they're desperate. Maybe they're listening more. I, I don't want to speak for other people, but do you feel like people listened more when you had these hard conversations or hard topics for men to list to talk about. Do you think they listen more while they're incarcerated, or when you have these conversations with people who have never been incarcerated? Um, I think it's just different, Bill. Um, mm -hmm. I think there are things that make it easier and things that make it harder. Um, what makes it easier? What makes people more willing to listen, in my experience, when they're incarcerated, is that the their world isn't working for them. So folks are just generally more open to challenging a world that isn't working for them. Um, as opposed to like when I've had to, I've done patriarchy workshops at fraternities, for example, where folks were a lot less likely to listen because their world is working for them. That kind mm -hmm. of patriarchy is rewarded in this, you know, kind of like white traditional upper-class patriarchy is rewarded in this society. So. Those folks were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, now, what makes it more challenging in prison is that there's more on the line. You have more to lose by challenging patriarchy in prison because of the culture of like prison politics, because of a culture that's like so much like your willingness to do violence is um, so closely tied to your daily safety. Uh, it makes it a lot harder when someone's living in such a violent situation to tell them by the way the one thing you think is keeping you safe right now is actually the problem right that's such a hard thing for people to have to like challenge that in their own life and know that okay i'm going to go against this grain and it may lead to you know a hard path a harder path and mm -hmm. the path through to you know through and out of out of incarceration is definitely definitely not easy and it's different for everybody and that ties to their race ties to their class it ties to their community and it ties to like each person's individual journey through life and where they are at that moment but i mean it's there i don't think there's anybody that it's easy for no matter what privileges you're afforded or where you are like losing your freedom is a very serious thing and i think like i don't know it becomes a hard it comes becomes a hard thing for me to talk to folks who are incarcerated because i i don't know where they're at whereas like with people on the outside it's, I'm, I'm usually a lot more in tune to where they are at spiritually or mentally and I don't know if I've told you, but I work with a with an organization called Pops, 
um, which stands for pain of the prison system. And we've been around for about seven years in a number of schools across the country. Started in Venice High School. Um, I run the one in um, at the Los Angeles High School for the Arts. And it's just once a week and we get together and we create space and hold space for folks, you know, all kids, um, high school kids to talk about how incarceration has affected them. Like some of them have been incarcerated, but that's not the focus of the, the space. Like many of them have never been incarcerated and yet have a family member or like loved one who is or was incarcerated. And so, I mean, I do, I've had so many people come to the class and talk and I, I really hope that you'll come when we get back to like having actual classes, which is hopefully soon given the situation globally. But that aside, I, I mean, like how, how would you explain to some, some loved one who's never been incarcerated, how they should engage with somebody who is incarcerated, but quite literally about creativity? Like, how would you, how would you encourage like a kid whose father's in prison to engage with his father and to like move through the emotions and, and anger that he might have because, or she might have, or they might have because their their father's incarcerated. How would I encourage them to engage directly with their incarcerated parent? Yeah, and like in a in a creative way. Is there like a creative language that you would like encourage them, or is there any advice or like tidbits you'd give them? Like imagine that you had a loved one, like be it like let's say your your mother or father and they wanted to engage with you while you're incarcerated like in a creative way what what kind of like tools or or like ways would you encourage people or advice would you give somebody who wanted to like get in touch with them because like one thing we do a lot of is, is creative writing and they'll write poetry and then eventually hopefully get to a space where they can write a poem or write a story and send it to their their loved one who's incarcerated like is there is there other ways that you kind of encourage people that could be an interesting way to engage with that person yeah, I think assume capacity, mm. like assume ability. I think so, so many times with, with incarcerated folks, we assume that they can't, um, but incarcerated, I mean, people are just so resilient and incarcerated people are, are very much so. And there wasn't too many people I knew who I was incarcerated with who didn't have some kind of creative outlet, whether it be drawing, or sewing, or rapping, or playing an instrument, or singing, or making cards, or like making jewelry, making sculptures, like there's just so much amazing art that's happening in prisons. Um, and for folks who are you who have incarcerated loved ones, one of the most loving things you can do is um, encourage that person to be artistic and to be an, an audience and a thought partner uh, and a creator with them. Mm. Is there like, what, what are ways you've seen people do that? Like, obviously music is an interesting way where people are like literally recording things through the phone mm -hmm. where people are using tools that are brought in with or without permission to record things, <laughs> obviously, you know, illustration and, and like painting and art, like depending on where you are and what, things you're able to get your hands on is there is there other like interesting creative endeavors you've seen people take on um who are incarcerated oh yeah i've seen people make sculptures out of toilet paper mm. where they like paper mache toilet paper and then they paint them with tea and coffee um i've seen people do whole paintings uh with tea and coffee um on like you know ripped sheets and handkerchiefs and um some of the coolest ink work 
just like straight pen that they can make look like a photograph. I've seen while incarcerated, I've seen people uh, build like ships in bottles with like toothpicks. <sighs> um, yeah, just like some of the most, just mind blowing, just mind blowing work. Um, folks and what's taking about it too is that a lot of it is things that could actually you know, make them lose more of their privileges or even extend their time that they're incarcerated where like you can get in trouble for tearing your sheets. You can get in yeah. trouble for having too much of X, Y, or Z or, you know, painting or doing tattoos or whatever it may, may be. And so like to see people actually risking their freedom to be creative, to make work is so inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that all the time when I look at the equipment I have now and just remember what I used to have to go through to make music and how badly I wanted to make music when I was incarcerated in mm. places where there wasn't anything. Um, I've taken some, I've taken some risks that I'm not at liberty to share publicly to just mm. be able to create. Um, one of the funnier things I did is, you know, every, I knew every prison is going to have at least one piano and it's going to be in the church. And I was willing to do whatever I had to do to play the piano. So, I remember I was in this one, I was on a level three, a high security prison that was always going on lockdown. I finally tracked down the piano. It was in the church. Um, and the only folks who had access to it were the Spanish speaking Catholic choir. And um, I told them, hey, I want to be y'all's piano player. I'll be it in Spanish. It's been really broken Spanish. Right. And they were like, cool, you need to memorize all the books of the Bible in Spanish um, <laughs> before you can be our piano player. And I fucking did it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And then it's like these other art kids who are crying because their canvas isn't stretched tight enough or whatever, you know, like <laughs> the, the realities of what, what it takes to be able to create while you have very little freedoms is so inspiring. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm going to let you go in a second, but I do want to ask you what, like, what now that you're working on? do you think has the ability to really shift the, the way people think about folks who are incarcerated, the way people talk about folks who are incarcerated and the way that we like treat people who are currently incarcerated? Ooh, so many things. Every, everything I make tries to do those things. <laughs> I love that. So I hope everything I'm working on is doing that. Cause that is, that is a, my, one of my primary goals that and ending patriarchy are my, my two primary goals when I make anything. Um, Sadly, but, they probably intersect. Yeah, exactly. Way too often. Um, <laughs> um, things I'm excited about right now: we're launching an IG live uh, show um, starting this Thursday uh, with Vic Mensa and called Abolition X. And every episode is talking about the intersection of abolition and and another thing and features somebody who's currently incarcerated um, talking with like an influencer. So like on Thursday, it's gonna be Vic, me, his partner, who's also a friend of mine named James, who's incarcerated in Illinois, as well as my two partners, 88 and Talib, who are incarcerated in California. And we're all gonna be talking about abolition and this moment and kind of abolition moving into the mainstream. And we'll be doing that every week with various folks. And I think that's like a really immediate way for people to see the humanity, um, creativity, and work, uh, organizing work coming out of prisons. Damn. 
It sounds incredible. I'm such a fan of Vic, actually. Like he's yeah. he's somebody who just is doing what you're doing, but in such a different way, but in the, probably a lot of the same ways as well. Like he's got the um, punk band Ninety Three Punks. Yeah, and it's just I mean that's like how many times I'm sure he himself, as well as other Black Americans or Black folks in the whole entire world, have been told like that's that's white music. You can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. Well, white music steals from Black music every day. Is it's just inspiring to see him like make music like that and do whatever the fuck he wants, like show up in the fucking studded leather jacket. Just, you know, like he is, he's a real one. So I'm going to look out for yes, that. What, what it. is it called? It's called Abolition X and it'll be um, on the Question Culture Live and Vic Mensa's Live uh, this Thursday at 12 p.m. PST. And it'll be every Thursday at 12 p.m. PST. Epic. And people can find that on like the Question Culture website and all of that as well, right? Yep. Exciting. I'm looking forward to it, man. And I, I, I feel like I could talk to you for like 400 years and I need to at some point. Um, but thank you, man. And I, I definitely appreciate it. And I definitely appreciate everything you're doing in a very, very, very real way. It means something I honestly can't put into words. And you're actually shifting the way I myself think, even just in watching you from afar and like knowing you a bit. So Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for the time you took to talk to me. And I look forward to seeing you soon, man. Thanks so much for having me, Phil. All right, brother. We'll speak soon. All right, brother. Peace. Peace. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Creativity on Love Extremist Radio. Find Phil America on Instagram at Phil, P-H-I-L, America. And if you dig this podcast, please write an honest review on iTunes and share it with your community. Every share goes a long way in supporting this project. I want to give a special thanks to Aaron Kanata for producing our theme music. And if you're curious to learn what being a love extremist is all about, check it out at www.extremist.love. Have a great day.